you need to know your family if you're really going to know yourself. Unprocessed trauma from one generation, it goes down each generation until someone is prepared to feel the pain. If you want to protect your children from the trauma that has been passed down to you, you have to feel the pain. There's no way around it. Hi, my name is Rongan Chastji. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. So today's conversation is all about families. And I want to start off by asking you a question. What does the word family mean to you? Why does family matter so much to so many of us? Well, as today's guest, the renowned psychotherapist Julia Samuel explains, every single client that she's seen over her 30 years of practice has spoken to some degree about the influence of other family members. Like it or not, we all carry our upbringing into our adult lives, our family is wired in us genetically, and it shows in our responses to life, our beliefs, as well as our triggers. So could finding out more about our families be the key to knowing more about ourselves? Well, I think after hearing today's conversation, you will certainly be very aware of just how influential your family has been in shaping who you currently are today. Now, I last welcomed Julia onto the podcast back in September 2020 when she joined me to talk about grief, living losses, and the power of pain. It was such an enlightening conversation that resonated with so many of you. And one underlying theme in that conversation was this idea that it's through adversity in life that we truly transform ourselves. Now, the occasion for Julia's return onto the podcast today is to celebrate her quite brilliant new book, Every Family Has a Story. How We Inherit Love and Loss, which is a powerful exploration of how our family relationships inform all aspects of our lives. As a therapist and bereavement counsellor, Julia has worked closely with countless individuals, helping them through tremendous difficulties. But as she tells me on the conversation today, it was only during lockdown and the possibilities opened up by Zoom she was able to work with multiple generations of the same family at one time. And this experience has taught Julia so, so much. In our conversation, we cover so many fascinating areas that I think you will find illuminating and eye-opening. For example, the issue of transgenerational trauma, this idea that some of our present day struggles probably didn't start with us. But of course, learning and forgiveness can. We also talk about generational conflicts over how we choose to parent or how to set boundaries when it comes to your emotions. And we talk about really practical tips that you can use to have difficult conversations. We also talk about the benefits of techniques like journaling, therapy, and even exchanging voice notes with friends. And Julia has some great advice on how to be compassionate and respectful with family members, while also recognizing and protecting your own needs. Whatever your family situation, whether you're close, estranged, or somewhere in between, I think there's something we can all take from Julia's powerful, effective, and compassionate approach. I hope you enjoy listening. And before we get started, just a quick shout out to LeafYard, a fantastic new mental health app that helps motivate people to take control of their mental well-being. Now, let's be honest, all of us struggle from time to time and need help building up our mental fitness and resilience. 
whether we have a diagnosed mental health problem or not. And science has now proven that there are so many things that we can do that will improve our mental fitness. Things like sleep, exercise, journaling, meditation. But the problem is many of us, despite knowing what to do, we don't actually take action, especially when we're not feeling our best. And this is where LeafYard can really, really help. LeafYard is a web app that takes a very different approach to building physical and mental fitness. It uses proven behavioral science to gently push you to take small steps every day to change the way that you feel. It helps you keep your mind healthy through a series of regular videos that will teach you how to cope with stress, increase happiness, and build resilience and confidence. Now, a recent podcast listener has been in touch to tell me, I love LeafYard. I really liked that you could get it on your phone. And it just keeps reminding me throughout the day, just little things like going for a walk or filling in my journal, but it's never too much at once and it doesn't feel annoying. I'm so glad I gave it a go because it gently nudges me to be proactive. It's made a huge difference to my well-being. If you want to give LeafYard a try, and I hope that you do, they're giving my podcast listeners an exclusive limited time offer, 20% off any LeafYard membership. All you have to do is go to leafyard.com and use the codes LIVEMORE20 at checkout to get your 20% off, or just go straight to leafyard.com forward slash livemore, where the discount will be automatically applied. And if you're not sure, give it a try. Everybody can try the app free of charge for 14 days. And now, my conversation with Julia Samuel. There's so much that I can't wait to get into. But I thought we'd start this conversation with a quote from the spiritual teacher Ramdas, who says, If you think you are enlightened, go and spend a week with your family. That's amazing. That should be in my book. <laughs> what is your reaction to a quote like that? My reaction is that, you know, our family is wired in us. It's wired in us genetically, in our felt sense, in our responses to life. And we're programmed from our family and how we go out into the world. So when we go back into our family, whatever age we are, we go straight back to our early roots of family, but also all of our beliefs, our senses and our fault lines. So, you know, my kind of belief in the book is that you need to know your family if you're really going to know yourself. As a psychotherapist, when did that first become clear to you? Did you start off working with individuals and then at some point did you sort of figure out that I can't really help this individual make sense of themselves without knowing their upbringing, their family and so on? You know, you know help us understand what happened there. Well, in my training as a therapist, you know, 33 years ago, Obviously, we learn that it is your upbringing that you kind of carry into adulthood. And so that affects how you are psychologically. But the most of the training is you work with one person, one to one. And so you hear about their family, their partner, their parents, their siblings, but you never meet them. And really, it was only in lockdown that I thought this is my opportunity to work with whole families because 
I can gather them together on Zoom in a way to get a whole family into a room is virtually impossible. And everybody's at home. And I think families are the most interesting, important aspects of ourselves. Um, you know, every client that has ever walked through my door has always talked about the family they're making or the family that they came from. It's an enormous part of us. You know, you're very experienced as a psychotherapist. So is is it fair to say then that it was only in lockdown, so in 2020, that you first started getting complete families together? Is that the first time? So complete, well, multi-generation families. So I, you know, when I worked in the NHS, when a child was dying or died, I'd work with the parents and the children and their siblings. Yeah. And sometimes I would go to their home if they were really ill. Um, but I had never worked with a great-grandmother, a grandmother, a daughter and a grandchild ever. And, you know, I don't, you know, there are family systems therapists, but they probably only work with parents and children. So it's, it's unusual, as far as I know, to work with multi-generations. But, of course, it gives you unbelievable insight. Yeah. I guess that makes me feel about a theme that comes up throughout the book I think it's one of acceptance in the sense that your family is influencing you and how you're acting right now in your life, whether you think they are or not. And unless you go back in and, I guess, self-examine those various patterns and relationships and therefore accept the reality of those patterns and relationships, it's very hard for us, I guess, to make changes. I think that's, I completely agree. And that it's more generations than we, I think, recognize. Mm. So, I, you know, one of the understandings, and I got it through the book, but also from research, is that the unprocessed trauma from one generation, it goes down each generation until someone is prepared to feel the pain. And so part of what I'm saying in the book is you may feel that there's something wrong with you, that you were born this kind of vulnerable person or highly sensitive person. And my message, it may well not have started with you. Look up, look at the untold stories, the secrets, the hidden things that have been untold. And you may well discover a suicide, a child's death, a loss, someone going broke, whatever it is that has been hidden. Because in the past, people like my generation said, what you don't talk about isn't going to hurt you. And actually, what we know is that those secrets, and they can be, it sounds more judging saying lies, but they're basically lies. <laughs> you know, they hurt you in the present until you allow yourself to hear them, feel the loss of them. And then you protect the next generation. It stops with you. You don't pass it down. You say lies. I guess some of these patterns or unwritten rules and families may start out as a bid to avoid pain and feeling the reality of what happened so we can move on and get past it. But then at some point, as you say, they're, they're lies because they're not, they're not real, but they may well be unconscious lies. Very much unconscious lies. And, you know, part of the process of adapting to a very difficult truth 
is denial. You know, when I'm given bad news, my first response is I'm not going to look, turn away. I don't want to deal with it. And, you know, I'm a freaking therapist with decades of therapy. And I know that that's my default response. Like, I don't want this to be true. I'm not going to face it. And then over, you know, depending, the bigger the loss, the bigger the denial, because it affects you more. But with me, you know, recently there was, I found out some news that I was very unwelcome. And it took me probably two months to turn towards it and allow myself to face it and begin to deal with it so that we all go at our own pace. But also, to some extent, we need the luxury of being able to feel the pain. So my parents' generation were, you know, their grandparents fought and survived the First World War. They fought in the Second World War. They didn't have any of the psychological knowledge we now have. And they were under threat. Their main imperative was to survive and get on. And as you've talked many times on your on our podcast, our amygdala doesn't care what you feel. Yeah. All it cares about is that you need to live. And so just push for your survival, whatever the cost psychologically. And that's what our parents and most of us do. But if we have the luxury of the space to reflect and learn stories and grow, then we, I do think feel the pain of it and I think we do thrive and feel safer. Yeah. I think it's very comforting for many of us, I would imagine, to hear that you as such an experienced psychotherapist, you've written three brilliant books, even you struggle when something happens that you don't want to happen. It takes you a bit of time to accept it. So I think that's comforting that we can all go at our own pace. But I think it also speaks to incredible self-awareness, right? It sounds like you know your pattern. When something happens or when something triggers me or when something comes in that I don't like, I know my default response. And I would say that a lot of people don't. They are, they're just reacting day to day without understanding, oh, I have a pattern here. And in my experience, certainly seeing patients if it comes to lifestyle change, I've seen that people can pretty much do anything for a few weeks. You know, they they get a blood test they don't like or something happens. They're like, right, that's it. I'm going to change. Two, three, four weeks, five weeks, they can do it. No more sugar. I'm going to exercise every day. Yeah. But usually, for many people, it then slips back again. You know, unless they really understand what role was that behavior serving in their life. You know, alcohol was helping me cope with my stress. Therefore, you can't just white knuckle it. You have to understand, well, where is the stress in my life? Can I help manage some of that better? And then I will have less need to drink as much alcohol, for example. Um, and I guess what I love about the book the most, you, you've got these beautiful family case studies. And I challenge anybody to not see themselves and elements of their family patterns in at least one of those stories, if not in many of them. And I think that's what's really comforting about the book is that you think, oh man, I'm not alone. Like it's not just my family. Other families have got issues as well. Yeah. And that the most personal is the most universal. Yeah. And that's what I, you know, one of the difficulties as a therapist is 
is confidentiality. And I think the wisdom from decades of therapy has very rarely got out into the world because of the issue of confidentiality. And so although I completely disguise all of the families, so no one would recognise them, only they recognise them, mm. I think their wisdom can change people's lives. I think seeing that, you know, we all live as a family on a spectrum of function and dysfunction. No perfect family exists. And I think particularly now with social media, you see these sort of perfected images of life. But knowing that families are both the source of our greatest joy and strength and kind of sense of belonging in the world, but also the source of greatest pain and where you hate most and where you make your biggest mistakes, because they're the people that we invest in most and care about most. Why is it that some families, when an adverse life event happens, why is it in your view that some families pull together when that happens, whereas other families seem to break apart and really struggle? Are there any, I guess, common themes that we can learn from? I mean, one of the things, like in that there's the Brian family whose daughter had died, yeah. Amani, and... There were two sides of the family from the mother and um, the father. And one of the things that was incredibly moving and also extremely painful was that when this child died, so at moments of big change, that is when families are under pressure because we all respond to it differently and we find, you know, the death of a child, she was three years old, is a devastating loss. And so all the pre-existing fault lines come into play and all the previous losses are accelerated. So your losses from the past come with your losses from the present. Yeah. And so this family, what happened with Angela and Keith, who, whose daughter had died, was that they both had very then very difficult relationships with their siblings. But Keith had a powerful, amazing mother, Patience. You know, she'd come from Antigua in the 1950s and she had experienced enormous racism um, but she had this amazing influence on her children and they listened to her, they respected her and they deeply loved her. Whereas Angela's mum had died and her father was a really nice guy, but he wasn't so invested in family. He didn't pull the siblings together. So I do think it's our parents, you know, adult parents of children and grandparents have enormous power and influence to hold families together at times of crisis, to enable them to both feel the pain and have their different stories. And, you know, in this, in that story, Keith and his mum conflicted about lots of different things, but by listening to each other, hearing each other, allowing their differences, they could then come together. And interestingly, it was the stepson, Linford, Angela's son, who also had a lot of wisdom. I think the power in families is when we allow each member of a family to have a voice and influence and shape each other and be heard and not have to be right or wrong and not to have one truth or one way of being because then you grow and have strength from a much broader base and not such a shallow base. Do you see a type of rebound effect whereby 
someone who's gone inside to figure out their family and their patterns and realise that they were brought up a certain way and certain aspects they thought possibly weren't that helpful. So they then revert to the other extreme with their own children. Um, I certainly feel like myself, I think that's happening. Like I don't feel, I don't know if it's culturally or generationally that it's not that my brother and I weren't heard necessarily, but I'm not entirely sure in our culture that, you know, it's like, oh, the kids, what do they know? Kind of thing. Whereas I feel, and I give my wife huge credit here because I think she's been a huge part of this, but one of the big values we have as a family is if the kids want to say something, we listen and we pay attention. I want to make sure that they feel heard. So in your experience of working with families, do you see this kind of rebound pattern where people are almost rebelling against what they had? And in sometimes, yeah, they try and rebalance, but sometimes potentially go to another extreme that may not be as helpful? I think that's right. I mean, you know, children now have a much you know, greater voice. I mean, I was very much brought up and maybe you had a, a, a slightly different version of children should be seen and not heard. Shut up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and children now do have a voice. And I think one of the difficulties now in giving children a voice is that perhaps sometimes they have too much power. And so, you know, there's power dynamics in families and there's communication in families. And so children do need to be heard, but they also need the boundaries of safety of who holds responsibility mm. for the family when they're children and who fundamentally makes the tough decisions. Because it's overwhelming for a child to have too much power. What I think happens in families is if your mum, for instance, started ticking you off for bringing them up a particular way, that could cause conflict. Whereas if she was willing and open to see you be a different parent to her and embrace it and allow it, that is a lovely restorative thing for the whole family. I know from talking to patients and friends that many people, many parents of young kids, and I guess maybe some of the older kids, feel that when they go to their parents or the children's grandparents, that there's a bit of a judgment going on because if they're choosing to bring up their kids differently, then sometimes their own parents don't really understand that. So, well, you know, it was good enough for you. You know, why is it not good enough for your kids? I know there will be people listening to this right now who probably feel that that's what's going on in their lives. Do you have any, I guess, helpful guidance for them as to how they might start to navigate that? I would name it. Like, talk to your mum and dad about, that. you know, they were really great parents for you and acknowledge the strengths and the gratitude and the love that you got from them. And also acknowledge that how I see things is, is slightly different about having to eat at the table or, you know, I don't know, all these different, having to be in bedtime at a particular time or the different rules that you have and ask them what they think. So rather than telling your parents, I'm doing it differently to you because you made such a bad job of it, it's like collaborate with them. Like you would yeah. a teenager in a way with a, with a grandparent, I would say, listen, we're trying this out. What do you think? Include them. So it isn't 
a behavior that's used as a kind of weapon to criticize them, but as a connection between all of them that you want their wisdom and you want their understanding, and they may agree to disagree. You know, one of the aspects of the book at the end is 12 touchstones to well-being. You know, one of the big ones is being able to have honest conversations and multiple views and that you can allow that. But the only way you can do that with your parents is by modeling it. So testing it and do it with small stuff. So don't go in with the biggest thing that you're trying to change. Start with small things. So open a conversation um, and ask their opinion, what they think. I guess at the heart of an improved and in some ways a more enlightened relationship with our families is the ability to communicate well. We can take this beyond families because, you know, last time you came on the podcast, I I remember telling you a story about one of my patients who all I did for her was just to listen without judgments. And that was a form of communication that allowed her to get to know herself better and actually improve her depression without medication, without me actually maybe doing much apart from listening. And this skill of communication particularly with your family, I guess, because if you're feeling triggered about something, it's quite hard to have that conversation, isn't it? You know, you say start with small things. I think that's great advice for people because if you're going for the big things, it's very hard for that anger or that frustration that frankly has built up for many years. It's, it's really hard for that not to come out, at least at the start. Is that your experience as well? Yes, I, I do. And Maybe do it while you're doing something so it's not too intense and eyeballing. So it could be that you go for a walk and talk or you're cooking something together in the kitchen so you're chopping onions together or that you're doing something that's collaborative and shared so you feel like you're in alignment Mm. in the behaviour that you're doing. Um, And acknowledge maybe that you feel a bit nervous about asking them. Or, you know, acknowledge what you're feeling as well as what you're saying. And I agree that a huge part, unrecognized part, particularly today, about communication is listening. You know, yeah. I think it's the key. Um, and, you you know, one of the things that they may try out, but it may sound too um, sort of psychological, is, Mum, I'd love to know what you heard me say. Mm-hmm. Dad, what do you think I'm saying? Because it, them in the process of repeating what they've heard you say helps them make sense of it for themselves and it slows them down. Yeah. And in the slowing down, they have a broader base from what they feel. So it's not their first response. It's a calmer, more reflective response. Yeah, no, I love that. Such a helpful tip. And, and that idea that it slows things down and allows you to process it. I really, really like that. Uh, It's something, you know, I think, I hope many doctors do with their patients as a way of just checking we're on the same wavelength. When you have been working with families, have you had to coach them on how to communicate better? Yeah, so the Rossi family was a family in the book where the father, Matteo, died 40 years before by suicide. You know, trauma has no time frame. It lives on in the memory ignited by sight, sound, touch and smell. And that trauma was as alive 
in the partner of Matteo Serra and their three children 40 years after his death. And it was being played out in every aspect of their lives, every decision and influencing them in sometimes very devastating ways. And so part of my role was to take responsibility and slow it down so that I could reflect what I saw was happening between them And that, so the mother, you know, was the children were very young when he died. And she did an amazing job of bringing them up and all of that, but she was furious <laughs> and traumatized. And so my role was to let them not have to worry about each other. And so I could say, well, what I understand that you're saying is and what you're feeling is and what I can see the impact of what your feeling is on your mom or your sister is this. It gives them a moment to go, oh, <laughs> a bit like what you said, your side. So I reflect back often what I observe. And in doing that, they understood each other from a completely different perspective. Not, not just their own lens, and could meet and support each other from a different perspective. And, you know, the mother in the end said, I was too frightened to ask you how it was for you. And so it gave her the courage to then ask them how it was for them and for her to hear the answers. These 12 touchstones at the end of the book, which you know, just fabulous and, and going to be so helpful for people. Number six is set boundaries. And I don't think the idea of boundaries even made sense in my family growing up. I don't think there was such a thing as a boundary. And of course, there can be many reasons for that. Certainly with my family, immigrant families to the UK, there's no family around. It's just us. You know, we don't have uncles and aunts close by. You know, most of the family were in India. So I guess there's all kinds of reasons why families may not have boundaries. I know many people struggle with this. And then if we start to go on that journey inside, looking at ourselves, looking at our family upbringing, and then start to put in place boundaries... It can be very challenging and it can start to um, expose, I guess, fault lines in the system. So that is a key touchstone, you know, set boundaries. How can people start and go through that process of setting boundaries? I mean, that's a huge question and it is vital boundaries. I guess the first step is awareness and to look at yourself and think about the different types of boundaries. You know, there are emotional boundaries, there's physical space boundaries, like your bedroom or someone taking your clothes. There's boundaries of um, uh, time. You know, how much time you'll get, how much time is expected for you to give. So there are many, many different types of boundaries. And if someone listening... If they began to think of, say, um, a space boundary of like when they feel emotionally intruded on, the way to do that is to remember a conversation with a family member and try and go inside and be aware of what happens in their body. 
So is there something that happens? Do they feel tight in their throat? Do they feel a, a kind of shaking in their stomach? Do they feel this instinct like they want to step back? And this sort of thing like, ooh, and a kind of wave that overcomes them. And, it, you know, with all of these things, there's spectrum. So it could you could feel that like 2 out of 10, or you could feel that like 10 out of 10. And But if you're aware of it, then you can begin to explore with yourself, what is that about? Yeah. Is that early from childhood? Is it from what's happening now that they're asking more of me than I'm willing to give and I feel like I'm drowning? And then begin to think, well, how can I both be loving and respectful of what this person's needs are, but also turn to myself with compassion and recognise my own needs and set boundaries that work for me? Because if I am overwhelmed, often what happens is you completely cut out. Yeah. So, you know, one of the difficulties in families is that at the time of a crisis you may feel overwhelmed of what's asked of you and people don't quite know how to manage that so they shut down and pull away or get angry and attack because of all these different conflicting feelings but actually underneath it might be because you care so much but what you're voicing isn't what you're isn't the, the reason underneath it's yeah. your defence. This idea of awareness, it requires people to do something that I guess I feel is becoming less and less common these days, which is sitting with yourself, having a practice of solitude where you're not consuming something on social media or distracting yourself, the ability to sit with yourself and allow yourself to feel in your body what's coming up. For some people, that's a big step, you know, especially these days. Anna Lemke, who came on the show a few months ago, this addiction specialist said, smartphones are the modern day hypodermic needle. Brilliant. Yeah, which is pretty provocative, but actually there's a huge amount of truth in that. So, I know I talk to my patients a lot about even five or 10 minutes a day of solitude where they can sit with themselves and allow things to come up. How important is that for someone if they are going to then change some of the relationships in their lives? How important is that that they get to know themselves a bit better first or can they simply get to know themselves through their interactions with their family? I think it's both and. Yeah. Um, you know, you cannot fix what you don't face. So if you're self-medicating with the hypodermic needle of your smartphone, with busyness, with alcohol, with sugar, with all of the things that are at, uh, you know, within hand's reach at any moment to eat our feelings, to block our feelings, then we have no idea <laughs> what is the hole in our heart or the overwhelming feeling that we have inside. And that can set up a really massively, as you've seen with your patients, terrible negative spiral where nothing can improve because you have to know something is disturbing you to be able to look at it, feel it, name it, and then begin to address it. Yeah. And you can do that in very small ways, like you say, like five minutes, just, you know, do that thing that I talk about in my other books, focusing of, you know, turning your attention in, 
breathing, seeing what you feel, you know, being aware of what you feel and naming it. And that gives you tons of information. You know, emotions are transmitters of information that need to be expressed and allowed through your system. The things you do to block what you're feeling block your system and keep you stuck in a dysfunctional system. Yeah, so powerful. And I think sometimes people think that, you know, I'm eating well, I'm, I'm sort of moving, I'm focusing on my sleep, but not spending any time on their emotional regulation and figuring out why they get triggered or annoyed at little things. It's so, so important. You know, we, we see so much research now that an inability to forgive, feeling hostile, feeling angry, you know, these things are associated with all kinds of negative health outcomes, autoimmune disease, cancer, heart disease, stroke, right? These, these unexpressed emotions are not benign, right? If you don't do something with them, they're going to eat you up, aren't they? They do. There's that AA frame, halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's a very good trigger yeah. warning, if you like. And you could be all of those things at the same time. I don't know if that meets what you're saying, but what I completely agree with is unless you're aware of what is going on inside you and you respond to the messages of, of what is going on inside you and you meet the needs of those messages, you will go on feeling as bad and that increasingly gets worse over time. Yeah. And to answer your question, you can do it in relation to yourself. But, you know, I'm a therapist. I definitely believe you learn a lot about yourself from journaling or from conversations. So sometimes people don't know what they're feeling until they voice it or until they write it down. And I think walking and talking is a really good way with a really close friend. Even talking into your phone, you know, journaling to yourself using your voice memo. Sometimes voicing it releases your unconscious to say words that you didn't even know that were in you that surprise you. Yeah, it's so powerful. And I completely agree. I have a really good relationship with this lady called Helen Hall, who... Your running uh, person. Yeah, she's amazing. And we probably exchange WhatsApp voice messages... I don't know, four or five times a week, Fantastic. really regularly. And it's just incredible that you start off, you're not quite sure. And by the end of this five minute message, you've kind of figured something out. Yes. You know, it's like verbal journaling. And yeah, there, there's something powerful about that. I think that tip you gave about when you have to have a difficult conversation or maybe broaching a topic that hasn't been broached before, do it whilst you're doing something else together. I think that's, you know, I think about, me and my kids, you know, you get things come up differently when you're both engaged in something. You're not looking at each other. It's not like daddy saying, okay, you know, so how was it? Yeah, or, you know, how was school today? You know, what happens? You know, oh, what, you know, it's, it's, I've learned that actually if we do something together and we're not looking at each other, actually things start to come up in a, it's just much more non-threatening, isn't it? Much more. So as a family, we have a puzzle that's always on the go. Right. And it's quite a big puzzle that's in the corner of the room. And my children, my grandchildren, they come in and it's a lovely place where you can be around the table, nobody speaks, and then and you can kind of jostle who found the bit and, you know, the competitiveness. But then you can begin to have a conversation 
about something that's difficult or tricky or that everyone is able to have the space to do because puzzling is slow. Um, and so that's a lovely way of doing it. Does it also act as a warm-up in the sense that to go from nothing, like if you were going to go for a run, you were trying to do, I don't know, a fast 5K at your park run. I think most people understand it's unrealistic to pull the car up, stand on the start line, and then be able to run fast if that was your goal. Is that similar in terms of communication in the sense that, you know, you can't just show up at your mum's house and then look her in the eye and try and go through something. Is there something about that that puzzle game that almost, it kind of warms up all the interactions in an unthreatening environment, which then allows you to go deeper? Yes, completely. And you can have conversations with your mum while you're doing a puzzle like, mum, what did your mum believe about sex? What, did yeah. your, what were your mum's values about money? What was your mum's upbringing what was the things that she found difficult and so you can begin to find the stories the untold stories from the generations before yeah. which may help you make sense of the story that is unvoiced in you that is disturbing you unknowingly julie i imagine some people would have just shied away when you said um you know you can ask your mum what did her mum think about sex, <laughs> right? So for, for anyone listening who did shy away then, I thought, no way can I even Could you say this. that to your mum? Well, you know, I'm talking about the listener, but if I was thinking about <laughs> myself, you know what? So I feel that my relationship with my mum is about as authentic as it's ever been. It, there's been some challenges over the past years, but on the other side of that, there's a real trueness. There's... Um, there's real boundaries now in a way that in the past there never were. And both of you kept the boundaries, right? It couldn't just be you. Yeah, I think it definitely has been challenging, but I feel it's in a really good place now. But in answer to your question, could I say that to my mum? You know, I have to sit with that. I, I Naturally, I think, no. But you know what? I possibly could these days. You know, I actually think I could. You know, she my, might be delighted to be able to talk about these things that are never talked about. It might be liberating for her. Yeah. But she wouldn't quite dare because it might freak her son out to say, do you know what my mum thought about whatever? What's really interesting is that my default to answer that question is kind of like, no, of course I couldn't. But actually, as I think about it and I think about the things that we have spoken about over the past two or three years, things that... No way would I speak to someone about 20 years ago or 10 years ago. I think actually I probably could now. I probably could. But maybe the last time you were on the podcast, I'm not sure I was in a place where I could have done. So I think that's really powerful. And I think the other thing that came through in my book is that grandchildren's relationship with their grandparents can be so much, so liberating in comparison to their relationship with their own parents. You know, there was the Thompson family, which was yeah. three generations, and the youngest daughter was going to university during lockdown. And when she came back from university, she went to stay with her grandmother, not her mother, because in their parents' house, there was masses of meetings, noisiness, and a lot of tension and different fights about the rules of lockdown, like most families in the country had. And she went for the solace of her grandmother. And so she could have conversations with her grandmother that 
were too intense to have with her own mother because as parents, we carry so much responsibility, we carry so much guilt, we're so invested in it and we don't want to have these things where they let us know what we did wrong because it goes against yeah. everything that what we wanted. Whereas, you know, this grandmother, she was liberated. She did. She felt free to be able to tell her, her granddaughter anything that she wanted. And it, it was a fantastic relationship. I imagine your daughter and son will have that with your mum. You know, when you say that, I used to see my grandparents once every two years. They lived in India. We lived in the UK. So every two summers, we'd go to Calcutta for six weeks. And so, you know, happy, happy memories of seeing your cousins and your family and your grandparents. But I didn't know them in my day-to-day -day life. And there I, was no FaceTime, there was no Zoom. There was no there was... Exactly. You know, for all the negatives of certain aspects of technology, of course, there were so many incredible benefits as well. Whereas I see my own kids and they see their grandparents all the time. They see my mum all the time. They see uh, Vid's parents all the time. And... I think sometimes, you know, Vin and I were chatting that it's wonderful to see their interaction. It's different. There's less kind of pressure yeah, in some ways. Yeah, You know, the grandparents are not really telling them about the homework or various other things, right? So it's a different dynamic. And, and they have more time. And they've got more time, exactly. Often. I mean, Often. And one of the most powerful, I think, messages from the new book... And I'm not sure this is spoken about enough. It's the benefit of other relationships, grandparents, siblings. I think we talk a lot about our parents. Well, I've covered that with, you know, this an incredible Dr. Gabor Mate on this show several times about, you know, how our parents and our early childhoods influences so much of our adult lives. But I love the way you've through storytelling of real life families. And sometimes it almost feels like fiction the way you've written it. It's really quite beautiful. Oh, thank you. Um, the impact of grandparents and siblings and great grandparents. And I thought we might spend a bit of time on one of the eight families in the book, the Burgers. Okay. I was just literally mesmerized. You know, when you read something where you just suddenly stop and everything around you just goes quiet because you're just engrossed. That was how I felt for much of this book, but particularly with that family. And I wonder if you could start up by just summarizing who this family are. And then I want to talk about various aspects of this family because I feel that it speaks to so much like transgenerational trauma, for example, I think is beautifully illustrated through this family's lives. Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Vivo Barefoot, who are bringing you today's show. Now, I've been wearing and recommending Vivo Barefoot shoes for over nine years now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have transformed my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. And I've seen so many benefits when people transition to minimalist shoes like Vivo's. I've seen back pain get better, hip pain, knee pain foot pain, even things like plantar fasciitis, as well as an increased enjoyment of movement, something I think we should all be thinking about as we head into spring. Now, Vivo have just launched their Barefoot Fundamentals video course, which is free for anyone 
who buys the best-selling Primus Lights or Tracker Styles. Now, these are both awesome shoes, both of which I have and currently use. And on this course, using their seven-step methods, you will learn how to rewild your feet, realign your posture, and walk, run, and move more naturally. The course will help you connect more closely with your body by improving your mobility, flexibility, and strength. And I think whether you're new to barefoot or have been wearing barefoot shoes for years, this course is a great place to start or continue your barefoot journey. Now, you may know that Vivo Barefoot Shoes are the only shoes that my wife and I wear and the only shoes that I will get for my children. If you've never tried them before, I really would encourage you to give them a go. It's completely risk-free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you just send them back for a full refund. For listeners of my show, if you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 20% off as a one-time code for my podcast listeners in all countries except Switzerland, Austria, Germany, Czech Republic, Australia, and New Zealand. And yes, you can use that code against the Primus Light or trackers and get free access to their new Barefoot Fundamentals course. You can see all details and get your 20% off discounts at vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Athletic Greens are also supporting today's show. Now, of course, you know that good quality nutrition is an essential pillar to get right for your physical as well as your mental health. And of course, in an ideal world, I would much prefer it if everybody got all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from nearly 21 years now of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to find the time to consistently do that. That's why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1 by Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop contains 75 whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. And I think that's one of the main reasons I like and recommend AG1. It is a really simple way to start each day and give your body the nutrition it needs. It helps support energy and focus, it aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system. AG1 has been in my own life for about three years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It's also really, really tasty. For listeners of my show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access an exclusive special offer where they are offering my audience five free travel packs and up to one year supply of vitamin D, a critical nutrient for our immune system. You can see all details of this special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. So this family is an ultra-Orthodox Jewish family that live in Manchester, near you. And I worked with um, four generations of that family. So I worked with Katty, who is the great-grandmother, who was a survivor of Auschwitz, who'd done the Great March and had been born in Hungary. And her entire family was murdered during the Holocaust. She came to this country age 16 and she married another Holocaust survivor, Isaac. She had three children. And so I worked with her daughter, Anna, who was in her 60s. She had five children. And I worked with her daughter, Rebecca, and then her granddaughter, Katty's great-granddaughter, Yeah, It's very rare for me to see on a screen 
five generations. It's incredible how they were together. The power of the relationship between them all was extraordinary to witness and incredibly humbling. If we go into Cathy's story a little bit, there were so many things about her and her experience in Auschwitz that, of course, informs who she is. I mean, that's the understatement of the year. Um, but there's an incredible spirit that I got of forgiveness and gratitude and, and literally being grateful for everything. And there was one moment where you were describing the, I think the words of one of the family members I say, oh, you know, Catty or mum or grandma never has a bad word to say about anyone. If someone's behaving a certain way, she goes, oh, they must be having a bad day. There must be something going on in their life. And I read that bit over and over again because reading that about Catty, of course, I reflected on my own conversation with someone called Edith Eager, yeah. um, someone who also was in Auschwitz. When I spoke to her last year, she was 93 years old and there was an incredible spirit of forgiveness and gratitude. And a sparkle. And a sparkle. And you think, wow, you have had your family murdered. You have seen the lowest of the low of what humans are capable of. Yet there was such gratitude and forgiveness. So what I saw with Catty was that she was a sparkly, bright 91-year-old. And, you know, when I talked to a neuroscience professor, he said she was very likely a sparkly, bright teenager, which was why Mengele didn't choose her to go into the ovens, why she might have been given extra bits of food and bread right. um, while she was um, at Auschwitz, which could have allowed for her to survive. And she also had within her the secure and loving attachment of the parents she'd been brought up by. So she had a lot of robust love. And the other thing she had, and she said it in the book, was if I was old with children, I wouldn't have survived. But I was young and I had hope. And she had hope that she was going to live. And every day she called on that hope. And that hope gave her meaning through the trauma. So a lot of people who survived Auschwitz psychologically died in Auschwitz. So, you know, like Isaac Bashevis Singer, he killed himself. Yeah. Um, and they felt had survivor's guilt. Catty did not have survivor's guilt. She felt the meaning she had was to meet Isaac, to be a loving couple and to bring up her children, to have children. And that was what kept her alive. And she obviously has this also genetically wired, you know, this predisposition yeah. to be the type of person that she was. And th that was extraordinary to witness. What was also fascinating to witness was seeing her children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren look at her with such reverence and that she gave them a model about living that was actually very hard to match and yeah. very hard to live up to. When I had the chance to interact with Edith, it changed who I was. Right? I wasn't the same person after that conversation as before it. How was it for you getting to know Cathy, hearing 
an incredible experience like she's been through. What did it do for you? Yeah, I was very much changed by it. You know, I'm married to a Jew, so I have a particular interest in Jews and Jewish life. And obviously the Holocaust has, has loomed large in our family. And I was scared before I saw her about hearing about the murders and the suffering and the, you know, the torture that, that she witnessed. And, you know, that's one of the things I, I turn away from in, in my daily life. I wouldn't choose to do yeah. that. And yet there I was in my warm room thinking, I don't want to hear this. And that felt bad, you know, because at least I can do is have the courage to hear her story. And so that was quite a wake up call, like what you don't look at, you can't learn from. And so I needed to um, at least hear her story and feel my fear and do it anyway, but also really humbling about the things that we mind about seem so ridiculous in comparison to how she lived and how she survived and what that means for her. That in the end, the only thing that matters in life is love. The love for your family, for your children, for your neighbour, for your community. And in the end, nothing else really matters. And that, I've known it, but I learned it again anew in a way that felt very profound. Cathy's approach and philosophy on life, you just mentioned, in some ways was an impossibly high bar for her kids, for her grandkids, for her great grandkids to live up to. Because on one hand, you can go, isn't that incredible, right? Yeah, always look on the bright side, be grateful for every day. But she lived that. So she got that deep understanding of that through her experience. And as you beautifully said in the book, lived experience cannot be replaced by theoretical insights. And if we look at that phrase through the lens of transgenerational trauma, first of all, perhaps you could explain what that is and how it gets transmitted for people. But I really want to get to this understanding that if her family have some of that trauma within them, even though they weren't in Auschwitz, in some ways that must be incredibly problematic because you've got it, but you didn't live it. So how do you kind of reconcile those two things together? And you don't legitimise it. So you think there's something wrong with you. Yeah. So to answer your first question, there are different ways of transgenerational trauma. And the meaning of it is that a devastating experience, an overwhelming experience that happens to one person gets passed down to the next generations in a family. And they get passed down in different ways. So it can be... If you've had a traumatic experience like Katty, that your behaviours are very kind of traumatised, that you're often very frightened, Mm -hmm. you may be very short-tempered, all the things that Gabor Mate talks about, that it sort of takes over your personality and you're constantly triggered in fight, flight or freeze. So it's very hard for you to feel safe in your body, to love and connect to others. And so that your behaviour gets passed down to your children. And it can also be passed down by the kind of uh, psychological problems it gives you. You might become schizophrenic. And so as we know, um, 
mental health disorders get passed down from, you know, parents with mental health problems pass those down to their yeah. children too. But then the thing that we're looking at now is the work of Rachel Yehuda and many others in Israel is that it gets passed down epigenetically. And so that means that the heightened level of cortisol that you have in your body that sends your body into code red gets passed down to the next generation through the womb so that that person, although they didn't, they weren't in Auschwitz, they have the wiring of being traumatized and they respond to life as if they had been in Auschwitz and they can pass that down to the next generation too. And so that's what I felt with these families. Although they weren't traumatized, they, they had a lot of behaviors of worry. You know, they could never wear stripes. When they looked at chimneys, they thought of Auschwitz. Dogs barking terrified them. So they had a lot of heightened responses that others wouldn't have who weren't the children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Um, and then they also said to themselves, don't make a fuss. You know, my, yeah. my, <laughs> how can I, you know, I shouldn't make a fuss. I shouldn't be upset. I shouldn't be worried about food. You know, they had quite a, a big relationship with food that was a complex relationship with food. Yeah. And I guess what what's so interesting is this idea that you're not just talking about mother to daughter, we're talking granddaughter, great granddaughter, you know, multi-generational trauma. And I guess that speaks to something you said about earlier in the conversation that the first step is someone willing to go, okay, I want to feel this, I want to sit with this, I want to process this to stop it getting transmitted again. So, yeah. If you want to protect your children from the trauma that has been passed down to you, you have to feel the pain. There's no way around it. And I felt with Rachel, who was the granddaughter, you know, her mother teased her sometimes, says, said something like, it's almost like you were in Auschwitz um, and that that would kind of undermine her. But actually, once she recognised and could allow herself to acknowledge it is like she's been in Auschwitz physiologically yeah. in her heightened alert system. So once she allows that, names it, she can deal with it. You know, this thing, what you don't face, you can't fix. So she was beginning to deal with it through our sessions and is dealing with it now. And she feels very, very different woman from what I saw when I first worked with her. My wife's parents lived in Kenya when the coup happened uh, in 1982. And, you know, literally overnight, government overthrown, gunmen at the door, um, you know, people in the, in the town and village getting raped and people going around with guns, right? And, you know, his dad talks about, for a few days at least, that they would have to double lock all the doors, put things in front of the doors, you know, really barricade. barricade. Yeah. F for real safety, because at the time, you know, no one's talking They'd about your murdered. psychological well-being. You're just talking about getting through and surviving. And what's really interesting, and I thought about this as I was reading your book, you know, my wife has certain tendencies in the evening, not on the day, around safety, you know, where the kids are sleeping, you know, uh, is the door shut? 
But it's interesting, isn't it? It's because some of transgenerational uh, patterns of trauma might be because you were there somewhere at the time and you could feel it from your parents. But I guess in other ways, or for other people, it may be that actually, no, it's just been passed down through the womb, this kind of preset genetic wiring that you then take into many interactions, if not every interaction of your life. And that you're constantly thinking about, at some level, safety and danger. Mm. That, you know, that is what the cortisol does for us, is that we are under threat and our key is to survive. And in order to feel emotionally connected, we need to feel safe in our bodies, safe in our mind, safe around our kitchen table. And I imagine with your wife, once she's done the behavior of locking the doors, takes a breath um, and kind of acknowledged to herself, we're safe now, then that allows her to be open and connected with you. And so that isn't a, that's yeah. a pretty kind of good behavior. Yeah. In some ways, if she um, didn't do it because she thinks I'm bonkers, why am I, you know, shutting the doors and locking the windows? Um, but then she would be constantly on alert. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty sound thing to be doing for her. And I would say anyone listening, the, you would have a version of your story. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be in Auschwitz, a Holocaust survivor, to have a version of this story. All of you, when you look back and do a genogram, will have versions of what happened that isn't told or is told and that is alive in your body. And, you know, trauma is resolvable and not everybody has trauma. I think sometimes people look kind of think everybody has trauma. That isn't the case. But you may have kind of subtle cues that you can't make sense of. Yeah. I love the way that each chapter starts with a genogram. Uh, yeah. And uh, as you were talking there, I thought, you know what, maybe I'll do one. I want to do one, you know, and just plot one out of my own family and various things. But is it something you can do yourself? Definitely you can yeah. do it yourself. And if you look at partition for your family, Calcutta, yeah. you know, all the story of that, your grandparents, your great grandparents, yeah. the empire, all of that, what's been passed down to you, that would give you a lot of information. One of the many striking moments in that chapter on this Berger family was when you mentioned that Cathy struggled in lockdown. I wasn't expecting to read that. And from your words, I don't think you were expecting to hear that. I'd love your perspective on that. Someone who has survived Auschwitz and seemingly coping with life very well on the other side struggles with lockdown. What's going on there? Well, I was shocked that she really found it very, very difficult. Um, and what we understood together was even in Auschwitz, she had her community. So there were three or four people in the camp that they all supported and helped and saved each other. She'd come from a secure family where there was a village and there was a lot of connection. So the thing that terrorized her in some ways more than Auschwitz itself was isolation. Because she, she used food, she was a fantastic cook 
And even at 91, she went on the bus to buy her own food and all the neighbours like outraged that she should do it. But she loved that sense of agency that yeah. she could do it for herself. But she was generative. So she would make food, give it to her children and her grandchildren. And that would a purpose and meaning and feel that she had connection to others. When lockdown happened, no one was allowed in her house. She actually went to stay with her daughter mm. for a while, but she always didn't want to make a fuss. Yeah. She always wanted to be independent. But it was very isolating for her and she was really scared and got very low from it. Yeah, so powerful to hear that. We're wired to connect. Yeah. Love and connection to others in the end is more important than anything else. And one of the reasons why lockdown has been so toxic and harmful to so many Millions. people, because of that, we are wired to connect. And I think the therapy rooms for the next decades will be filled with the losses the injuries, the wounds yeah. from lockdown. So do I. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But uh, I, I think people have changed. You know, I, I remember after, I can't remember which one it was in the UK, first or second one. I remember when the gyms opened. I remember going to the local swimming pool, the leisure centre. And I think it had been shut for five months from, from recollection. And... Um, I was chatting to the receptionist, was paying my money to go in and was saying, hey, how's it going? And I went in and after the swim, we ended up having a chat. And I said, how's it been? And uh, I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but I do remember this. He said, people have changed. We get a lot of people in, here, you know, in their 60s, maybe in their 70s. Five months ago, they were vibrant, engaged, happy. They would come in and they would chat. There would be a spark in their step. And now people are coming in and they're, they're insular, they're withdrawn, they're not saying anything. And that was over a year ago, I think. And I was like, wow, people are literally changing. And of course, that depends on who you are, what your life is. Do you have an ability to work? Have you retired? You know, of course, all those things play a role. But man, I hope we're wrong, Julia, but I, I have a suspicion that we're not going to be. Um, because the connection grows our brains. Our yeah. neural network grows through social connection, social connection within our families and into the communities. And when that is vibrant and alive, which we didn't quite realise how vibrant and alive it had been, yeah. it is our superpower. Talking to the swimming pool man, talking to your barista, yeah. talking to the, you know, I was talking to people at the Wilmslow station. Yeah. You have these very sweet, like, two-minute conversations and they give you, you know, that little act of kindness or energy. I was in a waiting room with someone, we were chatting. You know, there, there's a very nice human spirit of us kind of we're all in this together the the devastation of the isolation was this that i am alone in this and i don't know what to do with the fear the isolation and now going out is a kind of place of danger not a place yeah. of safety and connection and i hope that will change fast that people yeah. will feel safe but, you know, like I said in my first book, the process of change takes much longer than the event. So the adaptation process 
is is a long one, particularly from being kind of um, brittle and shut to dare to trust to open up. And I would suggest to people do small things yeah. like go out and go for 10 minutes with someone or go for a walk, you know, do things small first yeah. in order to begin to trust. One of the things I really, I guess, appreciated and enjoyed about this book, which I'm not going to stop raving about because Thank I you. want everyone to read it. Like I get so many authors on this show, but, and, and many of the books I, I really, really like. This one is special. It is super special. Because I think it gets that to the- That means a lot wrong and coming from you. Well, it you. really is. And I think it gets to the heart of who we are. And I think it's going to help people understand their lives better, themselves better, which I think is then going to have so many knock-on effects. You've been very open. You've been very vulnerable in places. And if we stick with the Berger family, I know Dina, there was a time as you were recounting that story that I felt you were almost owning up to like a bit of unconscious judgment and judgment potentially is is overly extreme, but almost that you, because of your experience, know what would be better for her or thought you might know what would be better for her. And it was so powerful when you understood that she had a very different perspective. Could you explain, first of all, who Dina is, where she fits in in this family and some of the learnings you had in terms of, I guess, your own inbuilt thoughts and arguably prejudices against yeah. a certain way of living? Is that fair to say? So it is fair to say. I mean, and we all have prejudices we do. We do. And, and judgments. The, the important thing as a therapist is to be aware of them and not act out on them. But I was really pulled. So Dina was the great-granddaughter. Of Catty. Of Catty. So she was 25. She was married with a daughter of her own, Leah. And... You know, the cultural orthodox community live in a very different way to one that I know and I kind of validate and believe in, in that as a woman, she wasn't really educated to work. She was sent to seminary in Israel when she was 18. But the men are kind of go out and do the professions. Some orthodox Jewish women have some professions like a dental nurse or um, working in a GP practice, yeah. but not careers. And they're kind of thought of as on the shelf if they're not married by the time they're 23, 24. You know, it's a very old school <laughs> in the way that we looked, like 19th century attitude to women where their main role is to be a wife, to have children and to take care of the family. And both with, with all of the women in that family, it pushed my button about women's power, women working, women being out in the world and women being equal. And for me as a woman, I working has saved me many times. And I wasn't brought up to work. So I was brought up just to get married. Um, my twin brother was brought up to kind of have a career and I had an old-fashioned upbringing. So I've kind of fought... <laughs> you know, strongly to have my own identity that is completely separate from the family I was born into or the family that I'm married to. Um, and my husband's incredibly supportive of me. And so it, the two have kind of merged now. Yeah. But, you know, I had this kind of striving to prove something, I think, mm. but also to kind of get in with stuff to, I don't know what it is, to kind of 
push through yeah. and I see myself as a cart horse. You know, I never had huge dreams, but I just would have one aim and I'd plod at it, you know, until I got qualified. Then I'd get in the NHS. I'd plod at that. I was there 25 years. You know what I mean? I, I'm not, I didn't have massive dreams, but I just worked hard all the time. And I loved the difference between work and home and how my identity changed. I loved working in the NHS. I loved doctors. And so there was a bit of me that was kind of raging against this, not against, but for her freedom. Like, if you were my granddaughter or my daughter, I would want you educated, getting out there, being in the world. And they, I would be on my bicycle and there'd be this kind of rant in my, <laughs> my head. And... I, and they lived in me. I dreamt about them. They were part of me for weeks and months, long after I finished writing yeah, about them, imagine. as all the families are. You know, people live in you. You dream about people you don't even know that they really hit you in your consciousness. They, they become into your unconscious. And what I realised was I was looking at it from completely a wrong lens. She was completely happy in the environment that she's in. And the big thing that I hadn't acknowledged was their Jewish identity, both the religious identity mm -hmm. and the spiritual identity. And that sense of belonging and safety, that from the history they came from, they were committed and chose to give up all sorts of freedoms. No, it wasn't even thought of as freedom because of their faith, because of their survival and that that gave their life meaning, satisfaction and joy. And they looked at me like, slightly, poor you, you're not part of us. I mean, they weren't condescending, but it was very much they felt they had a kind of answer for living. And what I really had to acknowledge was if you look at the level of loneliness and isolation in the UK today, they actually do have answers yeah. that we are ignoring because they are not lonely. They have this sense of community that everyone helps each other in time of crisis, which we could learn from. I mean, it's so powerful to hear that. It's so powerful to hear you acknowledge your perspective, of course, which you're entitled to. We're all entitled to our perspective, but one thing we're not that good across society at doing is understanding that someone else has got a different perspective. They have a different version of living and someone can be completely satisfied in that version. And as you were saying that at the end there about look around at our modern secular society where we go and follow our dreams and we move for work, you know, loneliness is on the rise. We are becoming... Anxiety is on the rise. Depression is on yeah. the rise. You know, families are struggling to bring up their children in isolation away from their communities. Yet we still think that... We know best. We know best. <laughs> you know, this is progress. This is human progress. And to be really clear, I am not at all for one minute suggesting that women having more opportunity than they used to is anything but a good thing, right? Of course it is. But hearing that report from Dina, as you just described it, it really makes you think. You know, it makes me think also, Julia, of this. I remember at a practice I used to work in, I was there for seven years. And I remember this, that there was a couple, a young couple, and their baby died. 
I, I can't remember how old the baby was, but within a few months. And I think they were coming in to see me and, you know, you're looking through the notes first and you've, you've seen what's happened. And I was quite junior at the time. So that, that's a bit of probably discomfort in me as a doctor. So how am I going to, you know, handle this? You know, I'm going to see the parents now. And they said something which has never really left me. They had such a strong commitment to their faith they said something to the effect of this was God's will and God always has a reason. And I can tell you at that moment, I didn't quite understand that. I was a lot younger, but actually it got them through, right? It really did. They, you know, I didn't see them that much, so I can't say for 100% that there's no problems. Of course, there was pain, there was grief. But that sense of connection to a higher power, a higher power, rules of living, right? They just accepted it. And, and it was, I really learned a lot that day. Yeah. It's, I think, one of the difficulties of 21st century life is that we kind of think we have the agency and control over all these profound things living and dying, yeah. health, ill health, and that were failing when they happen, that death is a failure, you know. And what I, you know, one of the reasons I wrote about the burgers is I think ignorance is where you get prejudice. You know, not knowing people's stories is where judgment blooms. And I had the judgment, although I was with them. And they taught me. They taught me what the research shows is that having a spiritual belief people do tend to be happier, less fear of death and more content. I'm not saying everybody should have one, no. but the research backs it up. Yeah, it really does. You know, th there's this whole idea of infinite choice. Yes, you talk about this in your new book. Yeah, there's a whole chapter on it because I, I kind of feel that we have just a barrage of choice in every aspect of our lives. You know, that's called really trivial stuff. Like you go on a music app, you can literally listen to pretty much any tune that's ever been published. Or you go onto Netflix and you can see hundreds, thousands of films, right? And we think more choice is a good thing. But actually too much choice becomes a stressor. And there's always this feeling that have I made the right choice? Would life have been better had I done that? Whereas I guess what I hear from this story is actually it, for certain aspects of their life, there isn't that much choice. It's like, this is how you live, right? These are the kind of rules of engagement for life. And maybe many people don't question them. It's like, this is how we live. And by not having the choice, would you say it's fair to say that choice was limited, but by limiting that choice, they were happier and more content? I would definitely say they had a sense of calm and satisfaction and they weren't searching. They weren't looking for something on the other side. The grass is greener or, the you know, 36 television or thousands of television channels, they invested their hearts, their minds and their time to the significant aspects of their life that mattered to the most, which was their family, their community, their faith, and for the men in the family, their work in order to 
to bring home, um, you know, to pay for their lives. And that sense of simplicity, if you like, was immensely satisfying and rewarding. It didn't mean that they didn't suffer or that they didn't have difficulties or that they didn't have conflicts like we all do. But they they weren't constantly hungry, looking to fill the hole in their heart, like you talk about in your book. They they were very satisfied with their sense of belonging, their faith, who they were and how they lived. You've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation, we want to feel safe in our bodies. What does that mean? I think what that means is that when we are not safe in our bodies, it means that at some level we're on alert, kind of looking for danger. That limits our capacity to really connect with ourselves and other people. So when we feel completely safe and calm, like I do now talking to you, I can notice what you're showing in your face, I can be aware of what's going on in my body. I can be aware of the thoughts coming through my head, choosing what I'm going to say, discarding what I choose not to say. And that our bandwidth of connection is broader. Yeah. That I feel that we are emotionally and psychologically and physiologically kind of aligned and yeah. connected with each other. If I was nervous, I'd be speaking very fast. I'd say the first thing that came into my head. And I wouldn't be able to look at you properly because I'd be kind of looking all around. So my attention span, my emotional mm. bandwidth, it would be limited. And then, of course, I'd walk out of the room and I'd feel a bit dissatisfied. Yeah. I'd feel a little bit empty. Whereas when I'm safe in my body, I'm safe in my heart, I'm safe in my mind, I'm safe in my environment... It's like having a wonderful meal. Yeah. It's like you really, I said what I believed. If other people don't like it or don't agree with me, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, I want to hear what they think. But I feel like I've said what is on my mind is true for me in this moment with you now. And I can leave it behind without it kind of ruminating in yeah. my body all the 50 different versions of what I could have said. Time clearly must play an important role in our ability to feel safe in our bodies. So if we take this podcast, for example, you say butterflies in your stomach at the start, a little bit nervous. And again, for me, I'm surprised to hear that because we communicate quite regularly. Yeah. We know each other well. You've been yeah. on the show before. I really so like you. Uh, yeah. And the feeling's mutual. Yeah. And so I think, okay, that's interesting. Um, so I didn't know that. Going back to the realities before, I didn't know that. One of the reasons I have made the intentional decision a few years ago to make these long conversations is, again, I didn't think of it through the lens of feeling safe in one's body, but I've always observed that the second half of the conversations, to me at least, are always better, deeper, more, more authentic. Yeah, more expansive. And that kind of makes sense. You know, we've spoken about warming up a relationship before, right? And I feel, yeah, we're starting off, we're warming up, you know, you've traveled up and we're just getting to know each other again in this very intimate environment. You know, this podcast table is, you know, it's pretty thin, you know, we're sitting very it's close nice. to one another. Yeah. But then as you presumably your system calms and you sort of relax more, then we can get deeper and deeper. 
And then if we... Less performative. Less performative, exactly. Whereas, you know, I know for Radio 2, I do 20-minute interviews. And yes, you can do a good interview in 20 minutes, but I, I can't say I find it as nourishing as something like this, where it's, uh, yeah, I feel uplifted afterwards when I've had them face-to-face. -face. Surprisingly, not always when I've had them on Zoom. So... We're talking about families. We're talking about how people can get to know themselves better through understanding their familial patterns. If we're so busy with our lives and we don't really have time to nurture those relationships with our families, how important is time in our ability to feel safe in our bodies? I think time has an enormous part to play in you know, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And if a value for anyone listening is family and people in their family, one of their questions to themselves is, am I prioritizing my time to spend with my family? And if I want to have kind of soulful, meaningful conversations, that will live on in me decades after maybe my dad has died, I need to create that time. You know, so in the same way, like being around the kitchen table, when you first sit down, there's a clatter and you're kind of chatting about your day. But as you go on through the conversation around your kitchen table, then you can begin to bring up, I'm a bit worried about my job. I'm worried about my teenage daughter who's developed an eating disorder in lockdown, all those different things. Yeah. You need time. And we need to prioritise it. I mean, the research is, again, pretty clear on this, that people who value time over money are happier. And, you know, I totally understand this can come across as insensitive and people will think, well, it's OK for some people. They've got the luxury of that. And of course, there's an element of truth to that. But actually, there is research showing that even in poverty, Ashley Williams did the study and showed that even in conditions of poverty, people who value time over money, they can have really positive effects that are much longer lasting than just the money saving. It, it's really incredible research. It's and incredible. It, and it makes you think, wow, we're all different. We've all got different lives. Ask yourself, though, where might you be able to prioritise time a little bit more than you currently do? And to kind of meet that also is that one of the definitions of being loved is being known, known as you find yourself to be, not just the, the you that you put on, the kind of performance you that you put on. And one of the things that came across in every single family I worked with, this was their family, and yet there were whole aspects of them that they did not know. So you cannot know your family by not having those important, sometimes difficult, but always useful conversations. And that takes time. On the subject of time, these 12 touchstones that you finish the book with, that, you know, if people read that, they're going to learn so much about how they can improve their own relationships with their families. Number eight is time for fun. And I starred that one. Why I start it, of course, we're all going to resonate with different ones, aren't we? The ones that we feel intuitively relevant for us. And you know, the reason for me that's such a big one is 
I feel that so much of my interactions with my brother are around caring for mum. Your chores, the to-do list. Yeah, the it's all about who's going it? around, who's given breakfast, okay, who's done that, who's been to the bank. And I, I figured out over the last few months that we never do anything fun together. Like, all we do is talk about mum and who's doing what. And actually, that is having a cost yeah. on our own relationship. So I've been thinking, well, how can I start to do more fun things with my brother, you know? We used to go and do stuff. We used to play snooker together. I was going to say club. snooker, yeah. Yeah, we used to go and do that or, you know, maybe go to a football Hike. game together. Yeah. yeah, whatever it is. And so that one really spoke to me. Out of the 12, and you wrote them, of course, which one would you say at the moment is the one that means the most to you? I think the one that means the most to me is the one that I'm worst at. <laughs> which is fighting productively, is that where you love people, you are going to fight and disagree and suffer, have joys, have pain. And we can't avoid conflict in our families. And I'm really bad at fighting. I get scared. I want to run away. And I'm being taught by my children how to fight so that you can say the difficult things, you can you know, really be honest. But that isn't like using words as weapons of destruction to kind of attack somebody, but to say what you're angry about, to kind of step away for a while, because obviously in the heat of the fight, you can't repair, but that in families, that thing of rupture where you fight and then proper repair where you make up and you heal and you learn to know each other in a different way is... I think incredibly powerful and my children are teaching me you know that to how to do it yeah. because I really don't like it and they are forcing <laughs> forcing me to and we feel closer because I you know I avoided it during their childhood and they were saying mum you always would say don't fight don't fight it's not fighting and so now they're teaching me that you can fight and you can feel closer and actually feel liberated yeah. that you can have this fight and then really love someone more afterwards, yeah. which isn't what my experience had been. Yeah. Julia, to finish off this conversation, I wanted to read something from your book, if I may. When families function effectively, they are adaptive shifting systems that respond to individual feelings and external events more positively and supportively than dysfunctional families. I think that beautifully in a nutshell sums up a huge part of the ethos in this book. I feel inspired to inquire more with my own family on the back of reading it. I think pretty much every reader is going to feel the same way. Families are complex, they're dynamic, they're fraught with problems for many people. What are some of your final words for people who have been inspired by this conversation, want to make changes, want to get to know their families better, but perhaps don't know where to start? I think maybe the first step is to turn to themselves with compassion, to be compassionate towards what their feelings are, to let themselves know that probably it didn't start with you, this feeling that something isn't quite right. 
and to dare to begin to explore, to look up to your parents or across to your siblings or, you know, talk to your children about things that have been bothering you that you have never dared voice or name or allow um, and start small. Julia, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You have written a quite wonderful book. Every family has a story, how we inherit love and loss. I look forward to the next time we get together. Thank you, Rongan. It was a real delight talking to you. You are a real inspiration to me and I have learned so much from you. Thank so you. thank you. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. And just a quick reminder before you go, I have a brand new book coming out in just two weeks now. It's called Happy Minds, Happy Life, 10 Simple Ways to Feel Great Every Day. It contains lots of simple and practical strategies to help you look after your mind and enhance your mental well-being. This in turn is going to have a transformative impact on your happiness and your overall health. The audiobook is already out in the UK on Audible and Apple Books. It is so wonderful to see all the five-star reviews and read about how much you are all enjoying it. The paperback comes out in the UK on March the 31st, just two weeks to go now. I cover loads of different topics, including how you can better deal with criticism, how to overcome a lack of motivation, how to build better relationships, and ultimately, how to experience more joy in your life. If that sounds of interest, please do consider pre-ordering a copy. All links to pre-order on both sides of the Atlantic are in the episode description in your podcast app. And before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday 5. It's my weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and your happiness. I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, interesting articles or videos I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. If that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Have a wonderful week. Please do press follow or subscribe on whichever podcast platform you listen on. And always remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more.